0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, December 18th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Some ways that COVID could change science forever, both good and bad. The business of Christmas trees and why we're still seeing the effects of the Great Recession in tree prices today. And a site that plays ambient noise from the forests of the world. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I and many others have talked a lot about how groundbreaking the development of the COVID-19 vaccines has been, how they could change vaccine development forever. And a new piece this week in The Atlantic goes into depth about how COVID-19 in general, beyond just the vaccines, has changed science and the ways that it may leave its mark. One initial indicator of COVID's impact is the sheer number of papers that have been published about COVID-19. 74,000 and counting on PubMed alone, more than any other disease including polio, the measles, and Ebola. And part of that is because there are simply more scientists than when some of those diseases were being studied. Since 1960, the number of biological or medical researchers in the US has gone from 30,000 to over 220,000. But it was also because the virus spread so fast, and that it spread to wealthy countries like the US, making it much more real to many researchers, and shifting their priorities en masse in ways that had never been seen before. And it wasn't just biologists and medical researchers. Neuroscientists investigated the lack of smell some people experienced. Physicists studied how long the virus can live on different metals. A survey of 2,500 researchers in the US, Canada, and Europe found that 32% across fields shifted their focus toward the pandemic this year. And that's amazing. We have so much more data than we could have hoped for, and what we've learned about it will help us learn more about and be better prepared for future virus outbreaks. But with so many people throwing their hats in the ring at such a fast pace, there were also downsides. Quoting The Atlantic, The Atlantic, Flawed research made the pandemic more confusing, influencing misguided policies. Clinicians wasted millions of dollars on trials that were so sloppy as to be pointless. Overconfident posers published misleading work on topics in which they had no expertise. Racial and gender inequalities in the scientific field widened." End quote. And just to put a footnote on that last point, multiple studies found that men were publishing more papers on COVID-19 than women towards the start of the pandemic. Quoting The Atlantic, The proportion of papers with women as first authors fell almost 44% in preprints relative to 2019. And published COVID-19 papers had 19% fewer women as first authors compared with papers from the same journals in the previous year. Men led more than 80% of national COVID-19 task forces in 87 countries. Male scientists were quoted four times as frequently as female scientists in American news stories about the pandemic. End quote. And the cause of that was suspected to be a number of things: women being more likely to be charged with childcare, as well as more likely to end up being the caretaker for a sick relative. Women professors also tend to have more teaching responsibilities and are turned to by students for emotional support more often than their male counterparts. All things there were much more of during the start of the pandemic, and women can sometimes be more risk-averse, not jumping in and towards publication with quite as much bravado. Meanwhile, Black, Latino, and Indigenous scientists were more likely to lose family members, to be grieving and organizing during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, and then asked to help their institutions solve racism on top of their usual work. As we saw time and again this year, the virus shined a sharper light on inequities we've often ignored too readily. And whether we will heed that finding as we move forward remains to be seen, and The Atlantic shared several other ways COVID-19 has affected science, both for good and for ill, depending on what we choose to do with it. Here are a few examples. Emerging disease researchers have new attention and respect that they haven't faced before, which will hopefully lead to continued funding. And with so many people around the world from different fields working on the pandemic, new collaborations have been formed and papers are being published with global interdisciplinary teams. Scientists say it's incredibly valuable that there are so many different people to turn to now to help problem solve. And the timeline for getting a paper peer-reviewed and published also shortened exponentially thanks to the increased popularity of a recent practice in the biomedical field of uploading preprints to freely accessible websites for instant feedback and dissection as opposed to the usually months-long process of peer-review and editing. All of that, plus new tools and methods that weren't available during previous epidemics, means, quoting Pardis Sabeti, a computational geneticist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, we're learning about this virus faster than we've ever learned about any virus in history." End quote. And of course, the success of using the mRNA vaccine method should mean future vaccines can be made more quickly. Nicole Lurie of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations said, quote, I don't think the world of vaccine development will ever be the same again, end quote. COVID could also change future treatment in a positive way, especially around conditions like myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME, fibromyalgia, and mast cell activation syndrome, illnesses which, because some of their primary symptoms are fatigue and brain fog, are often dismissed as psychological, and very little funding has been put towards them. With a growing number of researchers taking ME-like symptoms of so-called long COVID seriously, and with the unfortunately large number of people experiencing those symptoms and organizing themselves together, many of them being infectious disease and public health experts themselves, illnesses like ME, whether COVID-caused or not, may finally get the funding and research they deserve. And while COVID itself can seem very mysterious and contradictory in so many ways, the truth is it actually acts like a lot of viral infections do. We just aren't used to seeing so many people experience it all at once. And most people with more mild symptoms of other viral infections never seek medical help or get studied. But with so many mild and asymptomatic cases being tracked and studied around COVID, we could see some huge insights into the field of viruses overall. Much like the research that was eventually funneled into HIV and AIDS was able to shed light on a number of immune diseases and treatment, so too may COVID provide a lot of answers around some of the more rare or mysterious effects of viral infections. But some of the downsides of all this progress? For one, the other research that has been neglected with all eyes on COVID— Misdirected funding, canceled studies, stay-at-home orders, and physical distancing regulations. 80% of non-COVID clinical trials in the U.S. were paused or stopped this year. Climate and conservationist studies experienced a similar interruption. Even studies on other diseases, even other coronaviruses, were stalled in ways that will take a long time to bounce back from. And between the sheer amount of money being funneled into COVID studies, as well as a sense of needing to contribute to this dire moment, some scientists dove into and crucially spoke up about issues that were outside of their regular sphere of expertise, contributing to the climate of misinformation. And even just having that freedom to pivot or having the connections to snatch up funding as soon as it became available are actions typically dominated by more senior white male academics. Younger researchers trying to break through, women and people of color, all saw opportunity gaps widen this year in academia. And many researchers have been aware of those gaps both within academia and outside of it, speaking up more loudly than ever before about the social issues that necessarily play a part in public health and disease prevention. Maybe this pandemic will be the turning point of connecting all of those dots and funding them equitably all together. Or maybe that's being too optimistic. Quoting The Atlantic once more, At its best, science is a self-correcting march toward greater knowledge for the betterment of humanity. At its worst, it is a self-interested pursuit of greater prestige at the cost of truth and rigor. The pandemic brought both aspects to the fore. Humanity will benefit from the products of the COVID-19 pivot. Science itself will too, if it learns from the experience. End quote. With more people staying at home instead of traveling to celebrate Christmas together in one place, and lots and lots of people leaning hard into decorating their homes for each holiday to provide some much-needed sparks of joy in the darkness, sales of Christmas trees have been incredibly high this year. But how does a Christmas tree get from a farm to a grocery store parking lot before making its final journey to your living room? What is the life of a Christmas tree farmer really like? And what does the 2008 recession have to do with the price of this year's trees? I've got answers to all of that and more, starting with a fact that will provide a big hint to that last question. Christmas trees, evergreen firs, pines, and spruces, take over 10 years to grow to the 6 feet standard for home Christmas trees. They require constant shearing to keep up their idyllic cone look, which doesn't come completely naturally, and almost all Christmas tree farms bring in income from other crops or products. The evergreens alone are not enough to maintain a company. Vox recently spoke to Diana Carabin of Carabin Farms in Connecticut about her experiences growing and selling Christmas trees over the past 35 years. Like other Christmas tree farmers, Carabin sells other crops as well. Apples, bouquets, pumpkins, and products from their livestock. Carabin shared that not only is Christmas tree farming a long-term investment—remember, it takes at least 10 years for trees to reach the size commonly sold—but like all farming, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Droughts, insect infestations, they even discovered that a chemical used to treat corn grown on their land before they bought it was toxic to one variety of Christmas tree, but not to others. There's a lot of trial and error involved especially when trying out new varieties, and Carabin is also big on testing out her trees and other plants she sells in her home, treating them the way she imagines customers would—that is, just watering and not providing extra care like fertilization—so that she can figure out what works best and inform her customers. Even with the extra precautions they've put into place for COVID-19, Carabin expects they'll be plenty busy this year on the farm. She thought they'd see less people wanting to go out to buy pumpkins in October, but they ended up being packed with people looking for an outdoor activity and something to bring some cheer into their house. NPR's Planet Money recently got into the Christmas tree business, attending an auction and then getting a taste of trying to sell their own trees on the sidewalks of Brooklyn. Spoiler warning, it didn't work out well. Christmas tree hawking is an acquired skill that the two podcasters didn't quite hack on the first go. They did, however, share some fascinating insights, like the fact that there are Christmas tree auctions for a start. They went to the Buffalo Valley Auction Center in Pennsylvania, the world's largest Christmas tree auction, and often the one that sets the tone for how the market will look each year. At the auction center, 45,000-plus trees of all different varieties from up and down the eastern U.S. and Canada get auctioned off to buyers representing garden centers, hardware stores, and independent vendors. You know, the kind who appear each year in parking lots and on sidewalks selling Christmas trees. In the past, auctioneers visited farms to sell the trees, but now the trees are more often cut down, bundled together, and brought to these centralized events. And as Nick Fountain and Robert Smith from Planet Money learned, the prices for those trees were exceptionally high this year. And not just because of that increased demand of people staying home and wanting a real evergreen in their living rooms, it's also about supply. This year, as has been the case for a few years, there is a critical shortage of Christmas trees across the nation. And it goes back to that thing I said about the Great Recession. Because all of the trees being sold this year were planted about 10 to 12 years ago. And 10 to 12 years ago, during the Great Recession, a few things happened. First, with no one buying real estate, with buildings being foreclosed, no one was buying evergreens for landscaping. So many farmers repurposed the evergreens they had for landscaping to be Christmas trees. And that means come Christmas, there were tons of Christmas trees for sale and not enough buyers. The prices were super low so low that farmers barely made enough money to stay afloat. Many of them did go under. And this caused a pattern that kept up for a few years of farms not being able to afford to maintain their trees, not having the space to plant new trees because they never cut down the old ones to take to market. So the few farms that survived and the trees that actually made it through are the ones that we're seeing this year. Now, while the high prices caused by low supply and high demand are good news for farmers this year, meaning they can stay afloat and more of them can plant more seedlings in the spring, and 10 years from now we may see another boom, it's bad news for the vendors and for customers, both of whom are paying higher prices than usual this year. So if you thought the prices were jacked up when you went to buy a Christmas tree this year, it wasn't completely unfounded. The good news is we are in the final years of this trend and the market should stabilize again soon. And if you want to hear more from Planet Money about their antics invading that auction and then trying to sell trees on their own, the link is in the show notes. One more quick thing, if all that tree talk got you pining for nature and exploration while we're all cooped up inside, check out the website tree.fm. It's a curation of the sounds of forests from all over the world. When you go to tree.fm, you're served up a random forest with an ambient sound courtesy of the open-source Sounds of the Forests project, as well as a photo and a button inviting you to donate to Plant Some Trees via Ecosia, who partnered on the creation of the website with New Now during lockdown. You can skip ahead to the next forest if you want to keep exploring, but there's no way to manually pick which forest to listen to, unless you go through all of them and make a note of the number each forest is assigned in the URL slug, but I think that's probably gaming the intent of the system a bit. Regardless, if you are a fan of ambient noise while working or just want to pretend you're traveling through a forest on the other side of the world, I recommend checking it out. Tree.fm That is it for today. Just a quick reminder, though, that Monday is the Great Conjunction, when Jupiter and Saturn will appear closer together than they have in centuries. You can see them getting closer all weekend, but Monday night will be the peak, so don't forget to check that out this weekend. But that is it from me. I am now going to go solicit some audio recordings from farmers and start up Christmastree.fm. I hope you have a great weekend and I will talk to you again on Monday.